Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this week's edition of The Daily Journal Podcast. Today, with Mark Rosenbaum, we'll be talking about the great result in the U.S. Supreme Court, the extraordinary result of the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of the Board of Regents uh, and the DACA case, the DACA administration, first the Obama rule and then the Trump attempted revocation for the deferred action for childhood arrivals and, and other issues. The Supreme Court opinion in that case and other issues involving it as well. Our guest to discuss this today is Mark Rosenbaum. Mark Rosenbaum is now director of the Public Council Opportunity Under Law Project, which focuses on economic injustice. But for many years, he was the senior litigator with the ACLU. He is legendary and has won year after year significant civil rights cases against school districts securing additional funding, discrimination against Latinos uh, on behalf of disabled homeless veterans. He now teaches at UCI Law School. Uh, He has been named California Civil Rights Lawyer of the Year twice. He was professor of law at the University of Michigan and still continues his relationship there. And he has taught internationally civil rights as well. And he was one of the lead counsel in the entire litigation involving the DACA regulations. I think it's not an understatement to say, despite that very formal review of what Mark has done, that he is widely regarded as one of the leading civil rights advocates in the country, and by many as the leading civil rights advocate. And we're just very pleased and delighted that you're here to join us, Mark. Thank you so much. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really happy to talk with you, Howard. It's a lovely introduction. There are, as you know, extraordinary civil rights advocates throughout the country, and all those cases um, that you're talking about were done collaboratively. And I also want to say, Howard, that, you know, I the first trial I ever did was the Los Angeles school desegregation case. And um, I'm forever grateful to you for your courage um, under extraordinary pressures for standing up for kids of color when um, the Los Angeles community, quite frankly, as you know, um, didn't support desegregation and didn't support equal opportunity. And you were you were the leader of the uh, political process in standing up and saying that these kids had a right to um, the promise that Brown gave them years before. So it's a pleasure to talk. Well, thank you, Mark. And I, I do. I, I deep, deeply appreciate it. That was obviously a very emotional and difficult time. Uh, for many people, including you and me. It's one of the reasons that it's gratifying to see that these issues are now being dealt with on a deeper and I think more effective level uh, right now in terms of a whole range of, of issues of inequality in our society. And uh, so there, it's a new time, old issues, but I think they will be dealt with in a different, uh, in a different and, and effective way today. Um, I want to talk to you about the DACA case, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It started out with an Obama administration regulation, lots of litigation uh, about that, and then the Trump administration entered an administrative order rescinding it, uh, litigation over that. Uh, you, rep- you were counsel in the California cases, argued the case in the Ninth Circuit. Then it goes to the Supreme Court to what has been billed by, its, by many people as this very conservative Supreme Court. Were you surprised by the outcome in the case, which essentially invalidated the Trump administration's action in in revoking DACA? 
Were you surprised by the result and by the opinion of the Chief Justice that that uh, that did it? I think um, I think you'd, you'd have to be disingenuous to, to to think as we were walking out of that argument that um, that the DACA recipients were going to win. Um, the questioning was largely hostile, um, and um, it was hard to count the five. I do think, with, with respect to the second part of your question, that um, the nature of the Chief Justice's opinion, in line with his decision in the census case, which I also worked on, and the um, Affordable Care case, I think in, in I think with 2020 hindsight, that was not a surprise because what the Chief Justice was not was not arguing a substantive principle of civil rights um, jurisprudence. Um, rather, what he was saying is that as a matter of process, um, you've got to play by the rules. And that was certainly a theme that we stressed uh, in all our papers and, frankly, in the public presentation as well, that these young people, 700,000 young people, had played by all the rules, that they had um, come forward that they had disclosed intimate information about themselves, and that as a result, um, they were providing great services um, to their communities and to the nation as a whole. Um, I think that's what resonated with the Chief Justice, in contrast with the fact that the government was playing fast and loose with the rules. The government couldn't even come up with an explanation, a straight explanation as to why rescinded the program in the first place. They couldn't come up with an explanation um, as to um, the fact that it hadn't given any consideration at all as to what would happen to these families, what would happen to their community. You know, we are, we represented teachers in disadvantaged communities and doctors who were responding to the to um, the virus crisis and serving underserved communities and social workers and lawyers, and the, the, the government paid that no heed whatsoever. I, I think, I don't think anybody would say that this is anything but a conservative court, but I do think some, some principles have been set down, and one is that if the government is, is going to play fast and loose, if the government is going to lie to the court, if the government is going to seek to have the court to be responsible for um what would have been removed, removed to 700,000 young people. Um, and if the government is to be a handmaiden, I mean, if the court is to be a handmaiden for the president's um, political agenda, that's something where I think the Chief Justice drew a line. And I think, I think that will hold in the future as well. Now, this is a longer discussion, but it's pretty clear, I think, based on, on this opinion on the opinion, the seven to two opinions involving the subpoenas for the Trump uh, financial uh, uh, information, uh, that the court is more complicated than the politics have made it seem. The Chief Justice, people have described him as a Burkean conservative, but certainly a person who is interested in establishing a law as apart from politics, who's aware of the sensitivity of issues surrounding the court, and who's deeply committed to process. And the other surprise on the court, in, in terms not in this opinion, but in terms of other opinions, has been Justice Gorsuch, who, who in principle does follow textualism 
to its conclusion, as he did in the issue of whether basically the eastern half of Oklahoma was, was a Creek and other Indian reservation. So I think one of the, it's a longer discussion, and we might want to have it another time about the court as a whole, but it's a far more complicated court in terms of, of how the Chief Justice and Justice Gorsuch uh, have dealt with here in this opinion, in this term, uh, than, than I think was well, assumed. Well, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I certainly agree with you, Howard. And, you know, another, another factor that I think uh, fits with your description is this. The government cannot lie to federal courts. The government lies to the public. The government, the executive branch lies to the public. It lies to Congress. It lies to uh, regulatory agencies. But it, it, it cannot lie to the courts, at least to judges uh, before the set of judges who have been recently appointed. I'm, another case I'm involved in is a case involving um, um, the children who were separated at the border, wrenched away from their families, and um, um, utilized um, as part of a political process, like like DACA, but a part of a political process for a different agenda. And when when we were litigating that case in front of Judge Kronstadt, the government came in and just did bald faced lies that um, that the process was in fact justified by some sort of immigration progress where everybody in that courtroom and everyone in the public knew and there were in fact emails which we surfaced through the litigation that said look that the strategy here is cruelty the strategy here is make these families suffer and that's how we'll build an immigration policy and the government just lied to the court when it talked about that and i think that's what the chief justice was responding to in the census case and into and in the DACA case and as for justice gorsuch um, I mean, certainly his votes on most cases went the way that would be expected, but he did hold true. He held true to common sense principles of textual interpretation, and I think the litigators in front of the court, both of these factors are going to be huge messages in terms of thematically how to frame cases. Yeah, and the representation to the court, again, it's a longer discussion, but it really involves lawyers at the Justice Department. I mean, the great attorneys general like Robert Jackson and Edward Levy, uh, would be rolling over in their grave, I think. Uh, at, at, yeah, they would be. At the way that you know, I, I'm in, the case you mentioned at the beginning, um, um, the foreign students case. So, you know, we you think about that. The, the government on July 6th reversed the policy that it set out in March, not with any explanation, not with any record. It just did it. And it went to, then in case went to federal court and it had no explanation. But again, in, 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 in the same case, even after it was rescinded, you know, at the 11th hour, when everyone knew that the judge in Massachusetts was about to say, you, you can't do this. Um, I went, uh, with a lawyer from the Sidley firm, um, two days ago to lawyers from the government and said, will you agree that this rescission is permanent because we represent young people. We're the only case in the country that represents the actual students themselves. And we said they are, they are anxious about this. They are trying to organize their lives around this. Will you tell us that the rescission is permanent? And we couldn't get an answer. We couldn't get a straight answer. In fact, I was told that was a quote unquote silly question. 
And that the courts, at least some of the courts, are beginning to say, from the Supreme Court on down, that's not the way. That's not the way the judicial process works. You can't treat us as uh, a uh, part of your political campaigning and part of your ideology, ideological agenda. And so, you know, it's it's tragic that we have to be doing this, but um, at least the Chief Justice has said that there are rules to be observed here, and that if it goes to the courts, they um, they will follow them. Yeah, this is. Uh... You know, throughout the history of the courts, presidents have been surprised by their appointees. Theodore Roosevelt was surprised by Oliver Wendell Holmes. There have been numerous people surprised. But it, it's really, and it's not to, to use the word in terms of the Constitution, the effectiveness and genius of essentially giving life tenure to those appointed to federal judgeships uh, can only be removed in the absence of, of good behavior. Because something happens, I think. We've all known people on the bench and, and talked about what goes through their their thoughts. Something happens when you put a responsible person in that position. He suddenly is free from all pressures and constraints and really doesn't want to be thought of as a cipher carrying out political instructions by, by a president or anyone else. Wants really to think it through. And there's a great, I think, psychological element here about the self-respect that judges have for themselves in making genuinely independent decisions. They may wind up favoring the president who appointed them, uh, may not, but choose independent decisions. And it's noteworthy that when the president has clashed with the court directly, President Truman in the steel seizure case, uh, Nixon in Watergate, uh, Clinton when the case went to the Supreme Court, that the justices appointed by those presidents uh, had, had cast decisions against them. And I think that's in terms of what's going on now with the Chief Justice in the court, it may remind people of that and and uh, and really give a a greater understanding of, of the role of the judiciary in, in in preserving what we have. Thinking about what you said, thinking too about the affordable health care case, you also get the sense that justices begin to get a sense of where their decision will put them on which side of history and and particularly where, in my judgment, lawyers do their part in letting the stories, the actual stories of what these cases are about come through. You know, after we won the DACA case, one of, we, we were having a Zoom victory party, and one of the DACA recipients said, you know, what makes me proudest about this was that it was part of a struggle, and that when this case went to the courts, we were able to tell our story." We didn't have to be presented as if we were like white people, as if we were like uh, individuals who um, um, had been born in this country. We were able to tell our story as immigrants um, and talk about what this country meant to us. And I think that's part of it, too, in terms of what you're saying, that, that hopefully um, when, when certain justices at least get a sense of where these cases are placed in terms of history and what the true human stakes are, you, you hope and expect um, that some who maybe start out on one side and begin to rethink what their positions are. Yeah, I think that's right, and it's a lesson also for those who make judicial appointments uh, such a major part of the political process. I mean, we can't forget that it was the Eisenhower, the Republican appointees, Earl Warren and, yeah. and William Brennan, 
who led the great civil rights and other revolution, that it was Republican-appointed judges in what was the old Fifth Circuit when it went all the way to the Atlantic that basically desegregated the South under, under great pressure. And I think this is a healthy reminder in terms of the political discussion that this whole business of, of announcing who you're going to appoint beforehand and making the nature of the judicial appointments a political issue maybe is something that everyone will come to reconsider uh, in terms of moving forward. So let, let, let's talk yeah. about the DACA case. Let's start at the beginning, because this is really, as we'll talk, in terms of its significance, uh, we've seen in other Supreme Court opinions that have come down, it's not just the result, though the result here is dramatic and important, but the doctrines that are used that, that also are going to make such a difference going forward. So let's start with DACA. How did DACA start, deferred action for childhood arrivals in the Obama administration? What was the initial reg, uh, regulation that the Obama administration did? The, um, there were attempts in Congress as part of comprehensive immigration reform to include um, provisions both for young people who had come to this country at, as, as young as infants um, um, to um, um, to be here, um, and also for the parents as well. That that effort in Congress failed, um, and there the, the president, President Obama, um, with no choice in terms of. Congress acting, did issue, as you suggest, an, an executive order. Um, that executive order was grounded on his authority to um, manage immigration and to manage na national security. Um, he and his, um, his uh, head of, of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, who is now the outgoing head of um, the UC system, um, issued a relatively lengthy discussion saying that um, for purposes of immigration policy these these DACA recipients um, were um, were making a contribution um, by anybody's definition of culpability they hadn't willfully attempted to break laws of, of the country and that um, that they were um, um, they were in fact American by any common sense um, definition. This was the only country most of them knew. And it put conditions that the individuals had to demonstrate that um, they were not a threat to national security, did not have any sort of meaningful criminal record. But it was part of the executive exercising um, their authority to, to say, this is how we're managing national security, and this is how we're managing immigration policy. But importantly, I think in terms of that, because there was large misunderstanding about this, that really then involved two things. It involved forbearance on deportation, uh, that you could stay. But it also involved, because of other statutory provisions and its effect, uh, certain work, the ability to work, work authorizations, and eligibility for certain benefits. So... It's important in going forward because that becomes so much an important part of how the case proceeds Correct. that that action Correct. And that was two separate things, really. That's exactly right. And you're right in terms of that was a major factor in the Chief Justice's decision. And it was also common sense. I mean, if you're going to say we're going to forbear, they didn't 
offer citizenship. They didn't offer a path to citizenship. But if they're going to forbear, then it's important that the individuals just not be free-floating. That would effectively create a caste system. And so you're 100% right that um, there, there were provisions that said during this period of time you could go to school, you could work, um, and as long as you, you know, played by those rules, then the government would forbear from any sort of enforcement. And the reason I raised it now, it's like a preview of coming attractions in many ways. The fact that it did all those things, we can divide it into both two separate things, forbearance of deportation and the effect of that on school work eligibility and other things. The fact that it did both of those things becomes important in terms of evaluating then what we will get to the Trump administration did because of that got confused both in the public discussion and, and as we'll see going forward, even in some of the formal legal actions. So what follows Obama then is a group of states led by Texas uh, bring an action uh, to declare that and enjoin that the DACA regulations, they argue, are invalid because they didn't follow the Administrative Procedure Act, didn't put out the appropriate notices and follow the procedure of the Administrative Procedure Act, and therefore were invalid. And ultimately, the Fourth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, pardon me, the Fifth Circuit finds that is true, that they were invalid, enters that judgment, and there's a cert petition in the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court at that point only has eight members, divides four to four, and so by the absence of action with regard, as I understand it, to judicial action on the original litigation, the Fifth Circuit decision uh, invalidating the Obama DACA uh, regulations essentially is the effective ruling. But then, not quite. The Obama regulations included a small part to deal with DACA, as you and I have been talking about it. But it it it, it spent most of its time talking about a program called DAPA, D-A-P-A, which would involve the parents of the DACA kids, which was a much larger population and didn't have the same sort of equity. That's what the Fifth Circuit struck down. It struck down a slice of DACA, but nothing really nothing really core to the program that, that we're talking about. But it did invalidate the DAPA program. And the 4-4 decision did exactly as you said. And it did void that 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 program. I think the conventional wisdom was that when DACA, when DACA itself, front and center, came back to the court, that that 4-4 decision would be a harbinger of how the court would deal with the DACA program front and center. Yeah. Thank you. I, I thank you for clarifying that. Uh, that's important in terms of understanding the Fifth Circuit opinion. But then the Trump administration comes in, and the Trump administration uh, decides to rescind the DACA uh, uh, regulations. And it has an opinion from the Attorney General uh, saying that the enactment of the DACA regulations, the administrative enactment, was illegal because it didn't follow the Administrative Procedure Act. And on the basis of that opinion, described on the basis of that opinion, that's the basis on which the Department of Homeland Security then enters its regulation uh, revoking the Obama DACA regulations. Is, uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And it's important because the Chief Justice would also talk about this. It was, you know, we know, and this is part of history that remains to be told, we know that there was a lot of infighting. We know there was infighting between Miller and 
concessions as to how to actually frame it. Uh, but as you say, it was framed very narrowly, just with respect to the argument that it was illegal. There was no discussion of what that basis was. It, in fact, overruled a decision by the Office of Legal Counsel without even acknowledging it. It was done, uh, it, it was done in a way that a first year law student would have been embarrassed to, um, uh, make those arguments. It was based on the DAPA case that we just talked about without really even making connections to DACA. And it didn't consider at all what would happen to the 700,000 individuals. So it was, a, it was a slapdash motion and it was put out politically after the president had been on record as publicly saying that he loved the DACA children, that what initially he repealed all the Obama regulations dealing with immigration with the exception of this. He said he's a doctor, kids didn't have anything to worry about. And then when the political agenda started to switch and he couldn't get his wall and he couldn't get other things that he wanted with immigration, then he used these kids as stocking horses, which was another part of our theme. He openly said, um, um, I'm going to end this program, but if Congress does what I want him to do with respect to the wall, um, then I'll change my mind. And that wasn't discussed in, in the, the decision by the head of Homeland Security at the time, but everyone understood that that was, in fact, the context in which this was happening. Well, one of the things that, that is happening here in terms of this discussion, is very interesting, is you discuss how the attorney, the attorney general's uh, decision and how it was reacted is a separate thing here that I think as, as law professors and others will want to talk about as, as they review this, which is the quality of lawyering uh, that goes into these decisions. It turns out that the sheer quality of lawyering is tremendously important here. It's not just policy. And so that if, if there had been a different perspective on the lawyering, uh, there might have been a different result. And also, you mentioned the Office of Legal Counsel. What it does is uh, the Office of Legal Counsel, of course, is often regarded as the elite unit within the Department of Justice, but it is the the the, uh, the office that's charged with advising the president uh, directly and on giving opinions on things involving constitutional and other powers of the government. And uh, it has the, some of the best lawyers in the country or traditionally in, in, in OLC. Uh, and so I, I don't think you can emphasize that enough, Howard. The, um, you know, I, I've been practicing, you've been practicing long enough. You see both parties in charge of the Department of Justice and the Solicitor General's office. But you always expected, even when there were political positions taken, you always expected a certain professionalism and quality and most importantly, honesty to the work that that was forthcoming, that um, that was um, that was a hallmark of work from the federal government, and I think that's been lost. Um, I think that's I think that's gone now, and I think that with that, it's a lot of credibility, and um, also um, um, I think that has an impact on cases. So now the Department of Homeland Security, Elaine Duke is the Secretary of Homeland Security at this point. Uh, and so she enters an order, essentially a regulation, uh, revoking uh, the DACA regulations, uh, simply citing uh, the opinion of the Attorney General. Says, look, the Attorney General says this was illegal, and therefore it's gone. The basis of the Attorney General's opinion 
and what was misrepresented popularly was simply that since the regulation had initially not been done following the exact guidelines of the Administrative Procedure Act, it could be revoked in the same way it was done, which is outside the Administrative Procedure Act. That essentially was what the Attorney General advised of the Department of Homeland Security, as I understand it, and what was the basis That's of right. the basis of, of the order entered uh, by Secretary Duke. It's very interesting that she since said, and there's no way to know how to evaluate this, but Secretary Elaine Duke has, has recently said she deliberately kept it skimpy uh, in a, as, as an attempt to uh, to sabotage what was happening. There's no way to know how to evaluate that, except it's interesting that she now says that. So now we have the, the Department of Homeland Security revokes it. Litigation begins through various circuits. Uh, you argue that you represent, uh, you have the case in the uh, in, in California, in the Northern District, in front of Judge Alsup, the case goes up to the Ninth Circuit. You argue in the Ninth Circuit successfully uh, in, in in the Ninth Circuit, and that's one of the uh, opinions on which cert is granted, and the case goes to the Supreme Court. So let's go over Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. It, it's a five to four vote on the judgment. Uh, Roberts' opinion technically is a plurality opinion only because the fifth vote, Justice Sotomayor, she agreed with the wrote a concurrence essentially uh, saying that there should have been an additional reason, an equal protection reason for invalidating it. But essentially it's a five to four decision is what it comes down to with the chief justice writing the opinion uh, that, that governs the outcome. So tell us about the chief justice's opinion. How did the chief justice analyze this and what did he do? Sure. Um, let me say, first of all, that, as I said earlier, public counsel was a big part of this case. Um, we litigated the case with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, which did brilliant work, and Luis Cortez, who was a lawyer who actually, how it actually got started. I met Luis uh, and, and went up to Tacoma to represent the first young person whom the Trump administration tried to um, deport despite having um, DACA status, as well as um, professors Lawrence Schreiber and Dino and Shemarinsky. Um, the Chief Justice's opinion... Um, you could break it down in two areas. One, as you previewed, um, what the court said, what, what the Chief Justice said, um, was, look, let's put aside the question of whether DACA was legal in the first place. Because even, even what, no matter where that, what that conclusion is, there are still certain rules that the government has to follow. And one is, what are its options? Uh, the government had the option of forbearing from enforcement. The government had the option of pulling back the work permit and the student visa. And the government gave no consideration of those options. And the key phrase in the Chief Justice's decision, like the key phrase in the census decision that he said, like other earlier cases, is that the government has to engage in reasoned decision making, reasoned decision making. Now that's a pretty low bar. It just means we're not going to look at your ultimate conclusion except to see whether or not it is supported by careful reasoning. <clears throat> the sort of reasoning that common sensically you would expect the executive branch to engage in. And what the Chief Justice said is part one of his decision was I don't see that here. Um, what I see instead is after the fact attempt 
to, to make justifications. <clears throat> but with respect to reasoned decision-making at the time of the Duke Memorandum, I don't see it. For example, the government could have said, we will forbear from removing individuals, but we will uh, take away or modify the work permit or the student permit. There are a number of a full a whole constellation of possibilities that could have been considered, and in fact, they were not. And that was part of our strategy too, to say to the court that really what the Trump administration is trying to do is to make you responsible for the removal, to to make you the fall guy when it comes to the removals. And the first part of the decision is, no, you, you can't get away with that. You've got to have some sort of reasoning and explain the choices you made and to explain, in fact, what choices existed, and you did none of that. You just got this out as if it was a set of political talking points. Mark, I want to I want to ask you, of, pardon me for interrupting, but I want to ask you one important thing before we go past part one. You said the court, just, Chief Justice wrote in his opinion whether or not the original action by the Obama administration was illegal. I read the opinion as essentially saying the court is assuming that correct. it was, or even it may have used the word even if, but the, the opinion proceeds correct. on the assumption that it stands as the court's opinion on the assumption that the attorney general's view that the Obama regulation was illegal. It seems to me that's, a, in terms of what this case means going forward, it's really important to focus on that. The court was ruling on how do you how do you remove the effect of an of a, of a regulation that the attorney general ruled was illegal? Yeah, that's a nice point, Howard. And I, I'd flip it a little bit. Um, I mean, the, the, the way you've characterized it is exactly right. But I, I, I would draw two other conclusions. The first is that in emphasizing the two principles that that we just started talking about, what the court was saying is. is these principles are so basic to how administrative bodies in the executive branch making decisions that affect individuals, it's so fundamental to that that we don't have to have a detailed discussion of the legality. Government, now I'm using the words of the Chief Justice, has to turn square corners when it comes to decisions that affect individuals. That also goes to the point that you started our discussion with um, today, and that is this is the Chief Justice who was paying attention to the consequences of politically motivated decision on those laws. So so what the court is saying, I'm not going to give the government a pass in terms of those principles. The second thing I think um, that, that, that follows importantly from that is that in the Texas case, which is still ongoing and which you are talking about when you're talking about future cases, where the issue of the legality of DACA um, is, is, the, is the issue, um, you could say that the Chief Justice is communicating to the district court judge and to the Fifth Circuit, this is not a slam dunk that this is illegal. If it were wholesale, wholesale legal, you would have expected to see that in the Supreme Court decision that he that he wrote, and that's certainly the point that the four dissenters hit on very hard. So well, I think both of these messages are being communicated. Well, this discussion we're having about how the court dealt with illegally is critical 
for the reason that Justice Thomas's, we'll talk about the dissents, but the key point of Justice Thomas's dissent is that essentially the court is giving a license to all administrations to enter uh, illegal regulations because if the court is ruling that even an illegal regulation has to, only can be overturned by following the APA, why shouldn't an administration leaving office or any other administration simply violate the APA and, and enter illegal action? So this discussion is important because those passages of the court's opinion, it's true that the court assumed it was illegal, but the Chief Justice also slipped in a sentence that this it is not clear that this would be an appropriate case to challenge the illegality of the the correctness of the attorney general's determination of illegality. So when it comes to the point of subsequent administrations attempting to do blatantly illegal regulations, and this case is cited, those passages in the chief justice's opinion and the discussion we're having about what the court assumed about the attorney general's opinion of illegality will be absolutely critical in how future determinations are made about uh, how illegal actions are overturned. Uh, I agree with that. Yeah. So that is part one. Uh, and and the, the Chief Justice went out of his way and, and he talked about this. The, the, there were multiplicities. I mean, there were things at issue, not just forbearance uh, that, the, uh, the, that the Department of Homeland Security could have, uh, uh, you know, could have dealt with, with uh, eligibility issues, work permit issues, schooling issues, differently from forbearance. Didn't do any of that. And then we get to part, what we can call, there is something else here maybe we should mention because uh, as part of this process, the subsequent uh, secretary of DHS came in with a further justification uh, for uh, Secretary Duke's action. And and there was a subsidiary argument here uh, about whether the later explanation could be used to justify uh, the the previous action. Uh, That's an important point. But I think the far more important point of all for what this decision means is that the Chief Justice didn't stop. He could have stopped there. But he said you also had to take account of reliance interests. And he could have stopped there. But he went on essentially to write several paragraphs of what those reliant interests might be. Talk to us about that part of the opinion because to me and so many others, Aside from the impact of the ruling itself, that was the most striking uh, part of this opinion. Yeah, it certainly was. You know, if I could just say one thing with respect to what you said as a predicate, and maybe this is helpful to um, the young lawyers in particular who are listening. You know, you're asked a lot. You know, where do you where do legal theories come from? Where do litigation theories come from? And I think one of the I think one of the services that law schools do and I'm as guilty as anybody, um, is that they suggest that the answers are in law books or case books. In fact, the argument that you talked about, both arguments, but beginning with the um, failure to consider other options besides um, forbearance, the work permit, um, where did that come from? That was not in the initial outline of the litigation theory that really sounds that an experienced lawyer put together. It was really in sitting down with the DACA recipient when they asked the question, well, what's going to happen to my work permit? And what's going to happen to my student visa? 
and what's going to happen to the businesses that um, I'm running or the kids whom I'm teaching, that it dawned on the lawyer that that was the real-life question that would lead to ultimately the winning legal theory. But those theories weren't there at the beginning. It was actually listening to the people whose lives were affected and understanding how the how the decision itself worked and how it didn't work and what was missing that the litigation theories themselves grew to. And that goes to the, to the second point as well, and that is that the, the Supreme Court had said on occasion that, um, um, that where what was involved was an administrative decision that was being reversed that the court um, that the court would have to no, I'm sorry that the administrative agency would have to consider reliance issues came out of a case actually in California but that had never that reliance argument had never been held to apply to a situation like DACA when I argued that case, that this issue below, what um, what the court said to me and what the government said was, hey, wait a second. The DACA recipients were only given two years at a time. In other words, they got two-year forbearance and work permit, and then they had to come in and get it renewed, and then they had to come in again and get it renewed. And so the government said, by a definition of reliance, that only means that what was reasonable for the two years for the period of any single uh, grant of, of DACA eligibility. We argued that that was too crabbed a view of what reliance meant. But I can tell you, quite honestly, Howard, that the case authority had never been held to extend beyond the terms of what the government program itself was. And so we knew we were, we were entering new territory. So in our brief, and particularly in our amicus brief, and especially in the public presentation, what was discussed was real life what it meant. One of the things I said to the Ninth Circuit was, look, uh, individuals took out college loans. Nobody at uh, DHS ever said, don't do that. Individuals were teaching in schools where they would have students for multiple years. DACA recipients were becoming uh, doctors and lawyers with patients and clients that would have relationships that would extend beyond two years. Fortune 500 companies who thought a very important amicus group in this case said, um, if we lose, we're training these individuals, not for two years, but for a lifetime of work as long as they play by the rules. And that's what the Chief Justice understood, which again goes to the way we started out our conversation today. What, what the Chief Justice said is, come on, um, it may have been a two-year limit, but in terms of the way people organize their lives, and the government never said no to, to get married, to have children, to start businesses, to take out loans, to become doctors and lawyers and social workers and teachers, where what was going to be required was much more than a two-year commitment, government can't just ignore it. Roberts didn't say it, it had to honor it, but it said at least it had to pay attention to it. And the fact that it didn't tells you in another way 
that this isn't reason decision making, this is political decision making. Yeah. And there are a couple of important footnotes to that, of course. The brief and putting in this material, we don't call it that anymore, but for years we called briefs like that Brandeis briefs because it was Justice Brandeis when he was a lawyer yeah. practicing in Boston who was the first advocate in appellate cases and other cases, but especially in appellate briefs, to start to bring in those real-world consequences aside from, from the dry discussion of the law. It's so it's so regularly done now that we no longer even call it the Brandeis brief, but it's Louis Brandeis that began it. And the second point is how important amicus briefs have become in the court evaluating these cases. You're right. You are. You could argue in your brief what you'd heard from the DACA recipients. But I think it may have made all the difference in the world to get the amicus briefs from the Fortune 500 companies and from the universities on their behalf, writing as as as, as amici to the court on, on substantiating what otherwise would simply have been argued by an advocate. And so, again, this goes very importantly to lawyering and Supreme Court practice. And the underlying thing that you said in talking to the clients is so important is, you know, lawyers often have habits when cases come into the office of just thinking, well, what is the law and what are the facts? What causes of action do I file? Uh, what, what, how can I win this case? What damages can I get? When the real question for all lawyers with clients is, what result do I want for my clients? And you only figure that out by having an honest discussion with the client about what kind of result does the client want. Because often the client's result, the client's views become dominant, not just in what you argue, uh, but in how you achieve it. And so all those lessons are so important for young lawyers and, and, and for this litigation. But given what the chief... I, I, always tell my, I, I always tell my students, the easiest part of the case is developing the legal theory. That what, what wins or loses cases most of the time is uh, what are the great themes of cases. And, and until lawyers understand that, it's no different than how you sit down and write a novel or how you would uh, make a film. You have, or how you develop your relationships or your love. It's not a set of cold facts. It's not anything you can find in a, a law book. It's understanding what are the great themes that will resonate. And, Whatever anyone says about Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, whether you like it or don't like it, what, what has to come through are these themes of when he says, the government's got to turn square corners when the lives of human beings are involved. And those stories are what carry the case. And you're certainly right about amicus briefs. I mean, even if we talked about those, we certainly didn't have time to develop them, time and space. To develop in our in our papers, but you know you, you saw in his opinion, Chief Justice talks about the half a billion dollars over ten years will be lost to this economy. We put in evidence even after the case about who was who was the, who were the first responders when it came to um, the coronavirus. Um, who were the teachers in school districts who would not be replaced if the DACA recipients? Uh, had to leave the country. We wanted to communicate to the court what this would look like, what this country would look like if tomorrow you woke up and there were no DACA recipients there. And in, in some ways, what we were fighting with the fact was our success. I mean, all the cases got immediate injunctions, which in some ways 
gave the government politically an out in that there weren't stories about these DACA recipients going on buses to countries that they didn't know, knowing better than you or I would know those countries. But that, that was the function of the amicus brief, and in the larger sense, it was a, a, the function of the great themes of the same. But now we have this decision, and we have the Chief Justice. I think it's fair to say that anyone who reads the portion of the decision in which the Chief Justice talks about the reliance interests that need to be analyzed, even though he's very careful to say, I'm not saying these are reasons to not enter a particular order. I'm just saying they have to be considered. But it's very difficult to see how any uh, agency, uh, Department of Homeland Security, could make a decision revoking revoking DACA and considering these elements and then go ahead and revoking it without it being considered arbitrary uh, and, and capricious. Boy that, but, boy, that is exactly right. And when Trump said the next day, you know, we, we tweeted that night or that day, you know, we're going to, we're going to, they, they showed us the way to do this and now we're going to do it. Anyone who read Robert's decision knew that was nonsense for the very reason you're saying. Yeah. You couldn't overnight just slap those uh, reliance issues on a piece of paper and say that we sensitively considered them. And he was sending a message, you know, if you're going to try this again, you have the option of doing it, but you can't do it uh, on the back of an envelope. But now we have a very interesting thing that, is, that has come up. Uh, we're recording this, this uh, uh, podcast on July 17th. And uh, as of July 17th, as reported in the Los Angeles Times on the morning of July 17th, the administration is not accepting any new DACA applications and has posted on one of its websites a statement that the DACA opinion in the Supreme Court is without legal basis. So there appears to be some defiance, and we don't want to maybe be too dramatic about it at the beginning, but there appears to be a pattern of essentially the administration not obeying the ruling of the court. Uh, what you're one of the counsel in these cases. What happens in this kind of situation? What what do you look look to do if the administration simply ignores the opinion, uh, refuses to accept new applications, uh, and does not follow what the chief justice has set out? Well, I think you can be very dramatic about this. You can say, you know, give give DHS a week or so to get its procedures together. Um, and in fact, we were advising uh, DACA applicants, those who had not previously been part of the program, get your applications in. Um, but maybe wait a week to do that. But now that we're going on to a month, it's clear that this is deliberate. And it's clear it's a deliberate thing uh, uh, to the United States Supreme Court, screw you. Um, we're, we're not going to pay attention to this. That, um, this is their way of, um, of, um, of saying we don't intend to respect this decision. And what are we going to do? Well, you know, about an hour ago before you and I started talking, a judge in the Fourth Circuit, District Court Judge Grimm, said the decision is done. The mandate has issued. The decision is over with. We're going back to what it was in September. And we have had discussions the past few weeks about when the timing is right to do that. And if the government doesn't immediately um, uh, open up 
this application process to new DACA applicants, then we're not going to let them get away with it. We'll file papers for contempt of the executive branch with respect to it, which goes to another point that you made, and that is reason decision-making isn't some sort of sterile rule. It's to ensure accountability in government, especially accountability by individuals who are not elected. And so if the government proceeds to not accept applications, and there have been hundreds and hundreds from my office that have gone in, we're going to be in front of Judge Alsop um, in, in a moment um, to, to hold the government in contempt, require them to both accept applications and to um, make amends for not accepting them in the first place. This is deliberate application of a decision by the United States Supreme Court. Well, this saga will go on. We've had, I thank you again, Mark, for being with us. I, I do want to mention before we end the podcast that uh, if you would like, we've, we've spent time on this. If you would like MCLA credit, those of you who are listening to this, you can go to the website dailyjournal.com. Uh, that's outside the Daily Journal paywall. Uh, and you will see a link uh, from this podcast uh, to an MCLE test that you can take, send in, uh, and get the one hour of credit. Uh, if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you can find within the Daily Journal archives a treasure trove of, of decisions on these issues written by many people, in, including Mark and others, on all the civil rights uh, uh, issues. You can search for that. You can bookmark. You can save them. You can do research on their basis. If you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal on that same website, dailyjournal.com, you'll see the blue button that says subscribe, and you can click that and easily become a subscriber to the Daily Journal uh, with all of its benefits. But we're delighted to make this podcast available outside the paywall at dailyjournal.com and on iTunes, and especially pleased this week that we've had as our guest, Mark Rosenbaum, to talk about his success, but even beyond his success what is happening at the Supreme Court, what has happened in this case, for what this means not just to lawyers, but to our whole country and society on the importance of the rule of law. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. 